Thank you so much for, um, for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Rohan. I, uh, I recognize some of you. Uh, um, I teach the uh, history of Iran and the, and the modern Middle East here at LSE. Um, and tonight is the first annual LSE golf history lecture, uh, to which I'm very happy to welcome you on behalf of the uh, Department of International History. Um, we created this uh, annual lecture because, you know, there, I think there was a feeling that we do a lot of stuff at LSE on the Persian Gulf. We talk a lot about political economy. We talk a lot about politics. We talk a lot about business. But we don't really talk a lot about history. Uh, and as historians, you know, uh, we think that that's rather important. Um, uh, and so... Um, we spoke to our colleagues in the LSE Kuwait program, and they very, very generously uh, agreed to uh, sponsor this <coughs> annual lecture. So I just want to thank them. Uh, uh, and um, uh, I think we are off to a very auspicious start with our um, uh, inaugural lecturer, who is um, Professor James Good uh, from the Department of History at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Now, those of you who are aficionados of uh, U.S.-Iran relations and, and the history of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East will be no strangers to um, uh, Jim's work. He's a, a distinguished historian uh, of U.S. foreign relations, has written a number of books um, uh, on the topic of the U.S. and Iran and, and also the wider um, uh, uh, Middle East. Um, uh, you'll be interested to know that um, Jim served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Iran uh, from 1968 to 1971, um, and he later taught at the University of Mashhad uh, from 1971 to 1973. So, uh, you know, there's a, um, he, he really has an intimate understanding of the region of Iran, um, uh, which I think um, will come through tonight. Um, his lecture uh, uh, tonight uh, is entitled A Matter of Life and Death for the Country, the Iranian Intervention in Oman, 1972 to uh, 1975. And I think it's um, based on uh, an article that uh, Jim published this year in a, a special issue of Iranian Studies that I had the pleasure of editing myself. That's right there. Um, so I direct your attention to, to, to that article. It's a wonderful article. It's the, really the first one to delve into this topic based on um, uh, archival research. Um, I think Jim's going to talk for about 40, 45 minutes or mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. uh, which should give us plenty of time for Q&A. And then please stick around because we have a drinks, <coughs> drinks reception afterwards just outside. So come and have a drink, say hello, uh, uh, and... Um, uh, enjoy the evening. So um, all that remains is for me to ask you to please join me in welcoming Jim Good to the LSE. Thank you very much. Thanks, Raham. I'd like to thank you and the Department of International History for <laughs> inviting me here. Uh, I haven't been in London for a few years, so it's always nice to come back. And I've never been here at the school, so that's even nicer. Uh, I thought I'd begin with showing you a few images uh, of uh, 
related to the topic tonight and put them up right up front and then I'll go uh, to the paper. I'm not sure uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, the war in Dofar, uh, which continued from the late 1960s uh, up to 1976, the end of 1976. Uh, it's one of those little wars that's often forgotten about, but uh, in its day it uh, was a very significant uh, international engagement uh, involving uh, all the big players on the world scene from east and west, uh, and I'll be talking a little bit about that later on. But I, I thought I would show you this, uh, uh, this map. Uh, this is out of uh, the, British, uh, the British archives. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with this, this is uh, the... Uh, <coughs> country of Oman here, and the province that we're particularly concerned with here is the province of Dofar. Um, I say in the south, some people say in the west, I'm not sure exactly, uh, but anyway, this is the province where um, most of the fighting uh, took place between 1967 or so and 1976, and right next door was the, was the then People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which was supporting the Popular Front for the Liberation of Oman and the Arab Gulf. And, uh, and so this border was rather porous uh, and uh, without perhaps um, the support of the PDRY, the, this uh, engagement probably wouldn't have gone on as long as it did. Uh, <clears throat> you can see some of the, th this is uh, called the Hornbeam Line. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the strategy um, in, in fighting the war on the part of the Oman government. Um, but there were, uh, there were a number of uh, defensive lines established uh, progressively from the east to the west across the province. And the idea was to uh, remove uh, rebel forces behind each, uh, each of these barriers and then move it further towards the border with the People's Democratic <coughs> Republic of Yemen. Uh, and that was, that was ultimately successful with uh, a great deal of support from, um, uh, from Iran. I also want to draw to your attention this border here, which is the border with Saudi Arabia, and you probably can't read it, but this says undefined. And um, so there's this, this a question of exactly what part of this territory belonged to Saudi Arabia in 1973, and what part of it belonged to Oman. Then up here, of course, is this body of water here, this narrow body of water. It's about 40 kilometers from the tip of the Musandam Peninsula across to Iran. And that's the Strait of Hormuz, uh, which is in the news quite a bit these days because of the uh, oil, the transportation through the, through the uh, straits. And this is the island of Besh, or Hormuz in, in the old terms. This is Iran here. And this tip, the Musandam Peninsula, this is a small territory at the tip of the peninsula which is uh, controlled or uh, is part of Oman. It's separate uh, from Oman, the body of the country, but it's Omani territory. And then uh, here uh, is the, uh, the larger scale and the Persian Gulf, uh, UAE, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, Kuwait, uh, and then, of course, um, Saudi Arabia. So I'll be mentioning all of these places as I go through, um, and I'll, I'll probably leave that up there. Now let me just go through some of, some of the images uh, which are related to the talk, and then um, 
Uh, let's see, I want to get on. On the score here. Yeah, I just uh, put this up here because in spite of the fact that the government of Iran, the, the Shah's government, obviously was supporting the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Sultanate and the government of uh, Sultan Qaboos, um, uh, there, was, there were leftist groups, uh, particularly who were opposed to it, leftist Iranian groups uh, up here, Mujahideen um, Khalq, um, these two groups here, and then this was the symbol of the... Uh, uh, the Popular Front, and this this was from a, a, a piece that was issued by Iranian student groups in the United States. Actually, and I think this one came from California uh, in the in, in the early 1970s. Uh, and this key word here, um, they clearly on the left referred to the what was happening in Dofar as a revolution. I, I don't see it as a revolution, but. Um, some people will call it a revolution. Uh, and then this is, a, these are some personal snapshots. Uh, this is uh, Professor Good, when he was not a professor but a Peace Corps volunteer. You can see the ravages of time, what you all have to look forward to <laughs> if you haven't already got there. Uh, but these are some of the photos of Daos in, uh, in Bandar Abbas. Uh, they going from Bandar Abbas out to the islands, out to Qesh. This is Qesh, uh, some of the fishing boats and uh, the coast there. Uh, now this, I, I took this from a book which was published by um, the Iranian government uh, commemorating or celebrating the 2,500th anniversary of monarchy in Iran in 1971. And um, if any of you have been to Persepolis, if you... How many of you have been to Persepolis? So a few of you have. If you look down over the platform today, you'll see all these shredded tents and rusting hulks and so forth. But once they were very smart in, the, in October of 1971 for this celebration, and uh, the, the Shah spent, as you probably know, a great sum of money uh, to put on these celebrations. He invited all... The, the crowned heads and then the representatives from many uh, significant countries and so forth. It's kind of interesting. Over here you see a group of probably French chefs standing because they brought in Fr French food and French chefs to prepare food and so forth for the attendees. They're standing there looking over. But this is, the, this is one of the groups that I'm particularly interested in. This is the Shah Banu, the Empress of Iran, and she's entertaining. And hidden behind this, um, this woman here is Spiro Agnew, the then American vice president, who would soon be disgraced and removed from office. Uh, this is uh, King Hussein of Jordan, and then this is Sultan Qaboos of um, uh, Oman. And I, I put his picture in here because this was the first time that the Shah, during the Persepolis, uh, th this um, commemoration that the Shah and the Sultan were to meet. And it was at that, at that meeting that the, that the Shah indicated that uh, he was concerned about what was happening so far, and he was prepared to um, lend assistance uh, if, if the Sultan wanted that to happen. Uh, at the end, um, the Shah only visited Oman once uh, in December of 1977. Uh, and he flew into Muscat with a, a large retinue, um, this is a very young Sultan Qaboos here, and then the Shah. And this, if, for those of you who know uh, icons of Iran, this is uh, uh, Prime Minister Hoveda, 
who would die in the early stages of the revolution. He would be executed by the revolutionary authorities um, and then other Iranian and Omani uh, dignitaries. So this is when they first met in Muscat after the war was over. Uh, and then this is uh, them again, uh, Sultan Qaboos and the Shah and various military officers. Um, they flew to the south to Dofa, and then they motored, they, they reviewed the Iranian troops who were still there, and then they motored down the road to Salalah uh, in the south on the coast. Um, and this last image, um, this is taken last fall, or the end of the summer, uh, with President Rouhani on the right, and uh, a slightly older Sultan Khavuz in, uh, in Tehran. And I have this here because I wanted to emphasize, as I do in my paper, uh, the continuity between the regime of the Shah and uh, the, the Islamic Republic and um, the regime of Sultan Qaboos, who's remained a firm friend of Iran under the Shah and again under uh, the Islamic Republican government. Okay. Um, let me see if I can get back to... Yeah, let's just leave that up there. Uh, I'm going to read most of this because I, I use a lot of uh, direct quotations and that's kind of hard to do in a, uh, you know, in, without um, having close reference to that, but uh, I'll try to keep it as engaging as, as possible. So, uh, it's, it is appropriate, I think, to begin this evening's talk by mentioning my one visit to the Persian Gulf during the Iranian New Year in March 1970, which I showed you that... Uh, image of. I remember vividly the winding mountain road from the plateau down to the shores at Bandar Abbas. I spent several days along the coast and sailed in a dhow out to the nearby island of Qesh. Everything seemed different, weather, food, dress, even the dialect. It was like a different land. I imagine that much of that gulf has disappeared over the past four decades. But I've continued my interest in the gulf. Over the past several years, I've attended many scholarly panels at the annual Middle East Studies Conference in the United States, focused on developments in the region, especially relating to members of the Cooperation Council for the Arab States of the Gulf, which used to be called the, the GCC. A cadre of younger scholars are focusing their attention on the remarkable successes and continuing challenges of those states stretching from Kuwait to Oman. And then, of course, there are the many residents on the Arab side of the Gulf who trace their roots to Iran. The Iranian diaspora Kuwait communities in Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar are sizable. And in the United Arab Emirates, that community is comprised of more than 400,000 individuals. Given my long interest in Iranian history and culture, I'm intrigued at how these immigrants have become acculturated to life on the other side of the Gulf. But most of all, my interest in the Persian Gulf has been piqued by my research and most recently by my study of the Iranian intervention in Oman, a project that took longer to complete than I would have wished. This is my topic tonight. I hasten to add that I don't intend to go step by step through a subject with which many of you are probably familiar. Instead, I wish to emphasize certain aspects of this project and leave anything I may have omitted for your questions. 
Although there has been much formal, or informal rather, movement of people and goods back and forth across this body of water for millennia, it appears that the interest of the Iranian state in the Gulf Coast is a relatively recent phenomenon. Iranians generally considered themselves people of the plateau, and until modern times little transpired along the shores of the Gulf to interest the inhabitants of distant Isfahan, Tabriz, or Tehran. There were a few exceptions, such as Shah Abbas's intervention against the Portuguese at Hormoz in 1622, assisted by the British East India Company, but even that interest quickly waned. Overall, it took development of the oil industry to attract permanently the attention of Iran's government to those shores. Most of the country's oil fields and natural gas deposits lie within that region, and likewise its major refineries and export terminals. It was the Pahlavis, especially Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who began to articulate a national policy for the Gulf. And in spite of the fact that much has changed in Iran over the past 35 years since the revolution, some policies have remained. Thus, when we hear the following words, we cannot be certain if they date from the present or from some time in the past. Quote, the Iranian foreign minister told reporters today regarding the Gulf, we are against the intervention of any foreign power, in particular the intervention of the great powers in this area. Those are the foundations of our policy, and we are ready to work and cooperate with our neighbors on this basis. End of quote. These were actually the words of Abbas Ali Khalatbari on July 19, 1973. But current foreign minister Mohammad Javad Zarif would find nothing here with which to disagree. Nor has the interest of the Islamic Republic of Iran in Gulf security lessened since the revolution, for the Gulf remains Iran's lifeline to the larger world beyond the Strait of Hormoz. It may be of some interest to know what first attracted me to study the Iranian intervention in Dofar. Initially, I was searching for the origin of the apparently excellent and long-standing relations between the Sultanate of Oman and the Islamic Republic of Iran. When other regional states sided with Iraq in the long Gulf War, 1980-1988, Oman followed a more independent course, maintaining good relations with both Baghdad and Iran. <clears throat> and more recently, Oman has served as a mediator, hosting talks between the U.S. and Iran. According to a recent CNN report, wrote, Oman's Sultan Qaboos was a key player facilitating the eventual release of the American hikers. You may remember that episode of the American hikers, the last two of whom returned to the United States in 2011, and then offering himself as a mediator for U.S.-Iran rapprochement. The secret informal discussions between mid-level officials in Washington and Tehran began. So with the assistance of Sultan Qaboos, Officials in both countries began quietly making plans to meet in Oman. Hoping to keep the channel open, Secretary of State John Kerry visited Oman in May 2013 uh, on a trip ostensibly to push a military deal with the Sultanate, but secretly focused on maintaining that country's key mediation role, particularly after the Iranian election. 
And I recall the statement by Sultan Qaboos in December 1977 during Mohammad Reza Pahlavi's only visit to Oman, thanking the Shah for Iranian support against the rebels in Dofar. We will not forget, he said then, and he has not. Earlier he said of the Iranians, quote, they did not come for a picnic. They spilled their blood for Islam, peace, and stability, end quote. If this intervention had contributed to such a lasting relationship, I thought, it welcomed further study. My decision was only reinforced as I examined the secondary literature on the war in Dofar. Much of it focused on the military aspects of the campaign, and even those that emphasized diplomatic and political elements rarely gave much space to the Iranian role. See, for example, Donald Hawley's memoirs Desert Wind and Tropic Storm. Hawley served as British ambassador to Oman from 1971 to 1975, but he barely mentioned the Iranian role in the campaign. Once I began my research, I quickly discovered that the British archives held a far greater volume of sources on this and related subjects than did those in the United States, indicating, I believe, the fact that British diplomats knew much more about the Gulf and uh, also, of course, that sizable numbers of their officers and men were directly involved in the war as Americans were not. There was another reason as well for the relative dearth of American sources. The Nixon administration had established its policy for the Gulf and the Arabian Peninsula in 1969 and stuck to it doggedly. The United States would avoid becoming directly involved in the region, and at every opportunity it would encourage friendly local powers, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and especially Iran, to act. In the case of Oman, it urged Britain to take the lead. According to a British diplomat in Washington, so deep-rooted was the aversion to another military adventure overseas that it is almost inconceivable that the Americans would wish to take over or even supplement the British military role. There would be numerous opportunities in the coming years for direct U.S. involvement. But on each occasion, Nixon and his successor, President Gerald R. Ford, refused to be drawn in. American officials would act as helpful bystanders, trying to dispel any local suspicions about British policy, never undermining Britain's leading role, promoting friendly relations between Oman and Saudi Arabia, urging cooperation and coordination between Saudi Arabia and Iran. As for Iranian sources, I relied on diaries, especially the informative volumes written by court minister and confidant of the Shah, Asadullah Alam, a few early histories and secondary accounts in Persian by authors such as Muhammad Jafar Chamankar, who had access to Iranian archives. This phrase, Iranian archives, always reminds me of a story that I used to hear often from academics and others at the outset of my career, disparaging the quality of Iranian record-keeping. Iranian government documents, it was said, were stored helter-skelter without proper management or climate control. Wind gusts through open windows would blow documents around the room, and passing attendants would pick them up and stick them into the nearest container. Rain through those same windows would destroy unprotected documents more quickly. 
The moral of this story being, nothing much would be lost if Western scholars did not have access to the Iranian archives. This sad tale was about as far from the truth as one could imagine. What I observed in summer 2003 when I visited the new National Archives Complex and the Iranian Diplomatic Archive in Niavaran was that they are both state-of-the-art repositories. Their respective directors handed to me five published volumes of documents drawn from their collections, which related to foreign archaeological missions in Iran during the interwar years. And that was the topic I was working on at the time. I enjoyed an extensive tour of each center. At the diplomatic archive, I saw the Russo-Iranian Treaty of Tokamanchai of, 19, of 1828 and other similar documents all professionally preserved. I was assured at the diplomatic archive that records up to the revolution were available for research. Some of you may have worked in either or both of these archives. Others hopefully will do so in the future. Returning to the topic, I must admit that it was not always easy to answer simple questions relating to the Iranian involvement in Dofar. How effective was the contribution from Tehran, for example? On this, the sources disagreed sharply. According to a British squadron commander in October 1972, who had spent six weeks with Iranian special forces, quote, their standard of training was pathetically low. Indeed, he could not think of anything in which they could be said to be well-trained. Their map reading was unbelievably bad. They had no idea of cross-country movement. They were not physically fit. Initiative was not only discouraged, it was practically forbidden. Their officers, by and large, were weak, dull mentally, and soft physically. Compare this to the report of U.S. Colonel George Maloney after his visit to Dofar one year later in September 1973. Quote, the Iranian soldiers all arrive in outstanding physical condition. <laughs> Their uniforms, training, and discipline are outstanding. Their esprit and desire for enemy contact contrasts with the reluctant Baluch and Omani soldiers. The British are delighted by their presence and attitude, end quote. <laughs> I decided to let the British Ministry of Defense have the final word. Writing in 1976, after the end of the conflict, a ministry report concluded, the Iranians did not win the war, but it could not have been won so quickly without them. This seemed to me a fair assessment. As with any research, there are always surprises. In this case, three were especially noteworthy. They concerned the important role taken by China in the conflict, the consistency of Arab antagonism towards Iran and Oman, and the degree to which the Shah acted independently in responding to the war in Dofar. Let me address each of these. Uh, Communist China strongly supported the rebels in the early years from the late 1960s. Not only did Beijing send advisors to the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, but it provided training and equipment in China as well for members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Oman and the Arab Gulf. Only when its differences with the Soviets became insurmountable did China begin to lessen its support, 
seeking to establish stronger ties with such regional anti-Soviet states as Iran and Pakistan. China appeared to be as suspicious of detente as was the Shah. As I think about my initial surprise on learning of such widespread Chinese involvement, I can only conclude that it must be related to the trajectory of U.S.-Chinese relations. Because Washington did not begin even informal ties with Beijing until the early 1970s, the supposition was that previous to that time, the Chinese were bottled up in their East Asian stronghold, isolated from the rest of the world as Washington intended. When in fact, from the late 1950s, China had been making significant contacts throughout the Indian Ocean. We in the United States were blinded, no doubt, by a delusional policy. I should point out that a number of other nations supported the Popular Front, including the Soviet Union, East Germany, Iraq, Cuba, and others. This was clearly an international enterprise of considerable significance. Moving on to point number two, I was even more surprised at the vehemence with which neighboring Arab states responded to the introduction of Iranian troops into Oman. Arab leaders had turned a deaf ear to the call for assistance from Sultan Qaboos. At first, this seems surprising, given the fact that the Popular Front initially targeted regimes throughout the Gulf, not just the one in Oman. According to one source, Saudi Arabia had more to fear from this rebellion on its southern border than it did from Israel in the north. But aid to Oman came agonizingly slowly and in inadequate amounts. There was, of course, a history of antagonism between Riyadh and Muscat, rooted in rival territorial and political claims. And there were religious differences as well. As Sultan Qaboos told the British ambassador in October 1971, quote, King Faisal could not forget he was a Wahhabi, where Oman was concerned. This, of course, refers to the fact that 75% of Omanis belong to the Abadi sect of Islam, considered heretical by many Sunni Muslims. Then there was the reluctance to support a war of Arab against Arab, especially when one heard the constant charge that the real enemy was Israel and that Arabs should unite against that foe. Some of the Arab states... Kuwait, in particular, took a series of confidence-building measures to convince the Aden government to end its support for the Popular Front. A Kuwait Times editorial in December 1974 argued that there were good reasons why an Arab force could not be sent to the area. Quote, this would only prolong the war, and it would be an unhealthy precedent for the Arab League to interfere physically in an inter-Arab dispute. The Qaboos regime has no alternative but to talk directly with the Dofa rebels and the Aden government. Oman's problems are with the Arabs and can only be solved by Arabs without foreign intervention, Iranian as well as British. End quote. Any intensification of the fighting in Dofa would undermine Kuwait's efforts. Other Arab states, particularly on the left, such as Libya and Iraq, saw the hand of the United States in the foreign involvement in Dofar. They likened this to what had taken place in Southeast Asia and warned that Washington would suffer a similar defeat in the Arabian Peninsula. 
This would be their little Vietnam. Some Western officials also questioned whether the Saudis would have been capable of supplying the kind of aid coming from Iran, even if they had wanted to. Stronger than all of these concerns, however, was the fear that the Shah of Iran had larger plans for the Arab side of the Gulf and that he was using Oman to establish a permanent bridgehead. Again, these notions were rooted in historical and cultural antagonisms between Iranian and Arab. In their view, Sultan Qaboos had broken ranks when he invited the non-Arab forces to assist him. For that, he could not easily be forgiven. Oman's foreign minister, Qais Sawawi, stood his ground, remarking, brother Arabs always talk of unity but never follow through on their words. Which of them is prepared to help Oman as the nation of the Shah has done? One wonders if the Shah merited such mistrust. His forces had recently occupied Abu Musa and the Tum Islands in the Gulf, which were claimed by Sharjah and Ras al-Khaimah. This aroused much Arab opposition. The Shah sometimes suspended diplomatic ties if Arab officials referred publicly to the Arabian Gulf rather than the Persian Gulf. At the end of 1975, for example, he withdrew Iran's representatives from seven countries after Arab ministers used the offensive term at a conference. He was building an immense military with an expanded naval force. These seemed to be far in excess of what would be needed to defend Iran's non-Soviet borders. He had extended his influence far and near, making loans to Egypt, Somalia, and Sudan, among others, and engaging even more intensively closer to his own borders in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq. It was not only the Arabs who showed concern. Secretary of State for Defense Lord Carrington told his American counterparts in February 1953 that the Shah, quote, has got the Gulf and is digesting it. The following year, in bilateral meetings at the Pentagon, William Clements, Deputy Secretary of Defense, told his British visitors that he was suspicious of the Shah's ambitions. The Shah wanted to get a foothold on the Arab side of the Gulf, and it would be rather difficult to dislodge him. This latter exchange aptly reflected a division within the Nixon-Ford administrations between the Department of Defense and Henry Kissinger's uh, State Department. The former, led by Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger, grew to mistrust the Shah and frequently called for limitations to be placed on his purchase of American weapons whereas Kissinger routinely touted the value of having the Shah as a powerful ally in the Gulf region. According to Kissinger, the U.S. had no better friend than the Shah. Although the Shah had relinquished uh, any claims to Bahrain and had even proposed a regional security pact, Arab suspicions remained. In fact, suspicions remained long after the Dofar War had ended. In 1976, a briefing paper drawn up for a visit of Foreign Secretary James Callaghan to Iran argued that relations had improved somewhat under King Khalid, remember King Faisal had been assassinated the previous year, uh, with exchanges of royal visits between Tehran and Riyadh. Quote, under the surface, however, the traditional antipathy between the two countries remains, strengthened by mutual suspicion and Saudi distrust of Iranian ambitions. By reason of geography and wealth, 
They are natural rivals for dominance of the region, and there is no lack of issues, for example, Oman, on which they their views differ. Sadly, this antagonism has continued to the present. There has been little warming of Saudi-Iranian uh, relations under the Shah's successors. They differed over Iraq in the 1980s, over Lebanon in the 1990s, and now over Syria as well. If history has anything to teach us here, it is that these differences are deeply rooted and will not fade quickly. We should, I think, be wary of those who would suggest otherwise. What advantages might Riyadh or Tehran achieve through cooperation? Would these outweigh the benefits of maintaining the status quo? My third and final discovery during this research, and perhaps the most surprising of all, concerned the Shah's decision to intervene in Oman. I began this research thinking that I would find a good deal of evidence that the United States had prodded the Shah to take this critical step which, after all, seemed a perfect example of the Nixon doctrine in action. As it turned out, I was quite mistaken. The Shah had his own good reasons for taking the action he did. He stated those forthrightly. He did not seek American or British permission or support. In fact, he acted rather contrary to their advice. He seems to have taken them by surprise. Although the Nixon administration had urged the Shah to assist Oman, it had not necessarily intended Iranian boots on the ground. Although it is possible that Secretary of State Kissinger had some forewarning of the Iranian re uh, intervention, I have found no evidence of this. If such exists, it could be locked away in the Kissinger papers at the Library of Congress. Following is an interesting record drawn from British archives showing increasing British and American concern in 1972 over the Shah's policy in Oman. In May of 1972, in Israel quotes, it would be best to get the Shah to give financial support to Jordan and let Jordan supply military assistance. Direct Iranian assistance will rile Arab states. In May, there might be political difficulties vis-a-vis -vis the Arab nationalist states if the Shah were to give direct military assistance. But indirect assistance in the form of financial aid or technical assistance would help to relieve the pressure on Oman's resources. In July, the Shah wishes any Iranian help to Oman to be given in a discreet, a discreet manner, which should enable him to avoid provoking accusations of Iranian imperialism. In August, there is little chance of acceptance by Oman of Iran's offer of special forces. And then after Iran had intervened in October, not delighted with decision regarding Iranian troops, but we cannot challenge it and defend Sultan and Shah. In November, Americans surprised to learn of Iranian offer. It might implicate U.S., which has trained Iranian special forces. Why did, then did the Shah take this action? Simply put, he feared encirclement. At the time when he should have felt most confident, he worried incessantly about growing Soviet influence in neighboring Afghanistan, Iraq, South Yemen and Oman, and in the Gulf itself. Most of Iran's oil flowed through the narrow Strait of Hormoz, and he was determined to keep this passageway secure. When Soviet Premier Kosijin made a state visit to Tehran in March 1973, the Shah told him bluntly that the Gulf was, quote, 
Iran's lifeline, which must remain secure. He reiterated this point in an interview with Mohammed Haikal, the Egyptian journalist, saying that, quote, the Strait of Hormoz is Iran's mean, uh, means of access to the Indian Ocean and the, world is it, and the world. It is also the passageway for all Iranian oil. Can we allow a hostile force to take over, end quote. A successful popular front, front might become Iran's neighbor in the Gulf and roll over the tiny Arab sheikdoms up to the borders of Iraq at the head of the Gulf. Then what? The thought of this move the Shah to action more action than either London or Washington considered wise. The joint Omani-Iranian strategy, 1973-1975, was to create successive barriers of barbed wire, mines, and fortified posts stretching from the interior to the coast. These barriers were regularly patrolled and prevented easy movement of rebel forces from one part of the province to another. Once the area in the rear of a barrier had been cleared of the enemy, a new barrier would be constructed, moving ever closer to with the P, uh, border with the PDRY. In this way, territory under PFLO control was steadily reduced in size. Once they had adequate, uh, reached adequate strength, Iranian forces manned these barriers, while Omani troops mopped up rebel forces in the rear, which were now cut off from supplies and reinforcements. One of these lines was named Damavan, after the iconic Iranian peak. The Iranians suffered many casualties in this process. The Shah had additional motives, more tactical in nature. He saw the war in Dofar as an opportunity to test his soldiers on the battlefield. And for that reason, Iranian soldiers were rotated home every few months to expose as many of them as possible to the rigors of combat. British officials tried to explain that this was no way to run a war, but the Shah turned aside their complaints. Small units of Iranian special forces began arriving at the end of 1972, and more followed over the ensuing months. At the height of the conflict, over 4,000 Iranian soldiers were serving in Dofar. Iranian units served under their own commanders, not under British officers. They came well supplied. The Imperial Iranian Air Force used its C-130 transports to ferry in the troops as well as everything they would require, artillery, weapons, ammunition, even food and water. They evacuated the dead and wounded directly to Iran. The Air Force was the Shah's pride and joy, and it served him well. The Navy, too, sent several vessels to the coast of Dofar to blast rebel positions along the coastal plain and in the mountains behind. As might be imagined, the Shah kept a close eye on the progress of his forces, sometimes inspecting units on their return home. In November 1974, in Shiraz, he reviewed a, a brigade that had served with distinction, helping to open the road to Salala from the interior, and he promoted its commander. Six months later, in Mashhad, the Shah inspected another brigade, questioning its officers closely about the operations in Dofar. He gave orders that wounded soldiers should receive every attention. These experiences seemed to cheer the Shah. But the news was not always good. When he learned that one unit had performed poorly in a particular engagement, he asked their commander if he had sent a bunch of girls to Dofar. On another occasion, he telephoned General Azhari to complain about a failed mission. When the general attributed this to the heavily forested nature of the Tehran in Dofar, 
the Shah exclaimed, quote, didn't the enemy face the same terrain? He concluded that the soldiers had been either frightened or overly cautious. The Iranian press commended the troops for fighting like lions, which was something of an exaggeration. Yet despite some temporary setbacks, the Iranian forces performed well. Over 200 Iranian officers and men died in the war. As indicated earlier, many observers agreed that their participation was crucial in bringing the war to a relatively quick and successful conclusion. Dofar also allowed Iran to test some of its new weaponry, such as the Italian-made Sea Killer, a surface-to-surface missile purchased by the Iranian Navy. The Italians had declared it operational without much testing, and Iran bought hundreds. Its use in Dofar had proven its effectiveness, and rumor was that the Italian ambassador in Tehran was very pleased when he received that news. Uh, So finally, uh, what this intervention in Oman indicated is that by the 1970s, the Shah of Iran would act independently when he believed his country's vital interests were at stake. To quote Professor Alvani in his recent study, Nixon, Kissinger, and the Shah, quote, the Iranians were not simply bystanders in this global ideological and material struggle, that is the Cold War, but active agents of history who often abetted and manipulated the superpowers in the pursuit of their own local ambitions and interests. It challenges our preconceptions, perhaps, to argue that less powerful states could manipulate or defy a superpower, but this sometimes happened during the Cold War. We see this in regard to Cuba and the Soviet intervention in Angola in 1975, for example, and we see it also in the U.S.-Iran relationship when the Shah pressed President Nixon to join him in clandestine uh, support for the Iraqi Kurds in 1972. And we see something similar in the Iranian intervention in Oman. Once the Shah had made his decision to intervene, London and Washington had to acquiesce and do their best to manage the resulting Arab anger. And by the mid-1970s, Not only was the Shah pursuing his own ambitions and interests, but he was also becoming increasingly disillusioned with the direction of American foreign policy. He agreed with the neoconservatives in the United States that the Soviets were taking advantage of the U.S. under the guise of detente. Washington seemed to be in disarray under President Ford, who had little success in bringing an unruly Congress under control. That body had unwisely decided to embargo American arms to Turkey after the invasion of Cyprus. In that instance, the Shah tried to assist Ankara, supplying some of the material that the Americans had cut off. But he believed that unwise actions such as this were ruining the U.S. position in the world. This is what he told Ambassador Helms in summer 1975, and the ambassador agreed, saying, what can we do? Unfortunately, the free world had to follow Washington's lead, said the Shah. It had no alternative. But he made it clear that, quote, it could not dictate our foreign policy, end quote. In January 1976, he warned members of a visiting congressional delegation that he needed arms, and if the U.S. would not supply them, he would get them elsewhere. Also, he expressed concern that the U.S. might be returning to isolationism. If Washington didn't lead, Moscow would. 
all of these exchanges indicate to me a U.S.-Iran relationship that was remarkably different from that which remembers the Shah as a puppet of policymakers in Washington. Iranian forces remained in Dofar for some time. The Shah concluded that Qaboos wanted them to stay, just as the Germans wanted to keep American troops in their country. The Shah was pleased that the Sultan took his advice on such matters. The Sultan announced that they would stay as long as the border with the PDRY was open, and the Marxist supporters of the rebellion, by which he meant the Soviets, remained. The Shah's troops were withdrawn gradually over the next several years. The last of them departed at the time of the Iranian Revolution in late 1978. With the victory in Dofar announced by Sultan Qaboos on December 11, 1975, the Shah seemed at the height of influence and power. One could argue that 1975 represented the apogee of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi's long reign. In March, he had pressured Saddam Hussein to sue for peace, and in the Algiers Agreement, Iran had realized its objectives. He had led OPEC to get another increase in the price of oil. And then came the victory in Oman at the end of the year, achieved in spite of many challenges. The Shah could take much satisfaction from his intervention there. His forces had performed reasonably well, playing a critical part in halting the spread of radicalism in the region. He had won the lasting gratitude of Sultan Qaboos and an important agreement on joint control of the Strait of Hormoz. He had augmented his standing with the Americans, providing a successful model of the Nixon doctrine in action. As the Pahlavi dynasty approached its 50th anniversary celebration, who could have predicted what lay ahead for the great Shahanshah? Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, fascinating. I'm, I'm honored. It's quite a surreal experience. Good quote <laughs> me. It's very strange. Um, uh, so we have plenty of time for um, uh, Q&A. I have some roving mics here. Romina, can I sure. impose on you and ask you to... Um, so um, I think we'll try to take maybe a few questions at a time, mm -hmm. just Good. to save your voice That's a little a bit. Idea, yeah. um, um, so if you could just try to keep the questions brief, and the question ends with a question mark. Okay. <laughs> so thank you very much for that wonderful... Um, uh, I actually knew a man, I don't know, heard of the late Peter Thwaite, who advised the Imani Armed Forces, and uh, he became a dramatist, a very successful dramatist. But what I want to ask you was, if I'm right, that Amman was run by a man called Ben Taimur, who was very reactionary, and that was one of the reasons for the um, marks in 75. If I'm right, Krabos, the present Amman, was replaced in, was it 19... 70 by a British organized coup, and he's developed a country so that Oman is quite now a progressive country. I'd just like to ask if you have any comments on that one, if I'm Thank right you. in saying what I say. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? There's a gentleman over there. Do you want a second one? Yeah, just jump yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so I think my question is probably associated with that. Um, 
uh, what was what were the implications for the relationship with the British? Um, and, and obviously, there had been a, a huge British influence earlier. Uh, you now had um, British officers uh, in the Sultan's armed forces, and I don't know how much uh, policy connection there was between Oman and Britain this time, and how that was influenced by the Iranian connection. The, the British, after all, haven't featured great de- greatly in, in your talk so far. It's been mainly about uh, the West has been main, mainly uh, the Western relations have been mainly with the Americans. So uh, I hope that's not too parochial a question. But thank you. Maybe one more. Yes. You didn't mention the uh, cultural links between uh, Iran and the, the language, uh, the shared language, because I, I believe there's a uh, Farsi spoken in uh, North North Oman. Um, and, and maybe could you just uh, explain what's going on in Yemen right now? Is that a continuation of the uh, mm-hmm. current? All right. Okay. Well, that's a range of questions, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I didn't. I, um, you're right that the overthrow of Qaboos um, was participating. Right, right. Said. Uh-huh. His, his father, Said, and uh, he was removed from power, and then the old Sultan died. Uh, Shortly after that, actually, in England, was sent off to exile in in, uh, in England, and then uh, and Said uh, then Qaboos came to power with with some some support from from the British, and he was very close to an official uh, there who had been to school with here in in Britain, and uh, and uh, he had uh, you know he had been part of that uh, that conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the effect, of, uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of done what the literature has done, and I've excluded some of the more important, more important uh, aspects of this. Um, I, I talk about it in the article because the British, e- e- even with the intervention of Iran, and the British role remained uh, very, you know, very important. Um, uh, in fact, uh, both the Shah and King Faisal uh, and King Hussein of Jordan uh, as well. Uh, they, they all of them thought that the British role was much too large in Oman, and that the best thing would be for the British to leave as, as quickly as possible. And they actually, they actually said again and again that they thought that the British were dragging their feet because they wanted the war to drag on because it allowed them to exercise a kind of leverage and influence in Oman that absent the war they wouldn't have. And it was very difficult for the United I could, because the United States was trying to play this uh, mediating role because the last thing that the U.S. wanted to do was to be drawn in with its own troops, um, given what was going on in, you know, the disaster in Vietnam. Uh, so, but it was very difficult to convince either uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi or King Faisal or King Hussein that that the British didn't have yet another. Conspiracy going to to maintain to maintain their influence. Um, so yeah, so they had a they had a very significant role. And I think probably fifteen hundred men and officers there. They were not going. As the British government was not going to send any more troops. This was one of the problems that I also say in the article that um, the force that they had, the the Omani military forces with the British, and then Baluch and. Uh, troop as soldiers as well, they were able to hold the front 
so that the Dofari rebels were not able to expand into other parts of Oman, but they couldn't eliminate them with what they had. They needed more, uh, more uh, increase in troops, and the British government was not prepared to send any more troops. Um, so uh, the Sultan looked for uh, you know, other countries that were willing to assist, and the Arabs, as I said, were very reluctant to do that. And so the Shah offered to do this for a whole variety of reasons, which I set out in the, in the paper. Um, and there, as far as the... Oh, you did mention the cultural links. Though. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I didn't go into it in, in great detail, but there is a lot of linkage back and forth across, and there's a fairly sizable diaspora community, uh, Iranian diaspora com- community um, uh, there is there as well. So yeah. So historically, I mean, there are lot, lots lots of things. What's that? Uh, the diaspora community in the Gulf of Oman. Uh huh. From Yazd. Did you say Yazd? No. Oh, in Oman or in uh, in the Gulf in general? No, in Oman there's a there's a community as well, but the larger in like the UAE is what I'm talking about. Man. Yeah. Okay. Other questions? Yes, sir. Um, I was just curious to know why you said you certainly didn't consider the uh, the Fari uprising as a revolution. It's not revolution anymore. Uh, because it doesn't se- it didn't seem to be very widespread, uh, you know, among the um, among the population. I mean, from the records that I've looked at, I mean, it seemed to be very limited. It started out as uh, uh, re- you know, representing many different groups. It wasn't just Marxists, there were nationalists. And, and um, it started out under the regime of the old sultan. And uh, he you know, was notorious for not paying a great deal of attention to you know, events that were transpiring in, in the country. He spent a lot of time in the palace uh, you know, at, at Salala and so forth. So the, the, there was perhaps a lot of reason uh, for... This, this uprising. Initially, there were these different groups that had come together to form the, the Popular Front. But over time, the, the Marxist groups within it pushed the others aside, uh, you know, non-Marxist nationalists, uh, some tribal groups, and so forth. So it, it became increasingly more narrow as time went on. Um, and many of those who had initially joined the rebellion, when the regime changed in Muscat, uh, to Qabus, then you know they made their peace with with, with the regime. So I didn't see that. Um, you know, to me, it didn't seem to be be, be revolutionary. Uh, the, the 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 rhetoric, the propaganda was what you might expect from revolution. But on the ground, I didn't really see uh, that. And and um, and I think the Dofari rebels, who could, the, a lot of the areas they control, they really ended up antagonizing the local population. So. Okay. Yes, the lady in the, in the. Do you want to wait for the microphone? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> Take, don't fall over. <laughs> yeah. I have two questions. One is the why? Do, why do you think that they, there was a disparaging remark about Iranian archives? Was it to do with not going near it? I'm sorry. Why did? Disparaging remark, right, like saying that our Iranian archives wasn't oh. properly kept. Oh. So I was wondering why. Was it to do with keeping a secret or something? Okay. And another it? question is, um, do you think 
because of the way Shah behaved towards this revolution or war, whatever it was, and excluding British totally, was his downfall was going to be imminent. Uh, you mean, mean because they, were, that they hatched because the British, conspiracy against him, you mean? Well, not conspiracy, but I mean, he excluded British from um, Oman. Jim, shall know. we take a few questions? Together? Yeah, we can take a few yeah. questions. I better jot that down, though, for... Um, Save Rowena running around constantly. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you see the implications of this relation in today? Like, is it a win-win relation between Oman and Iran, or is only a win side from Iran? Uh, I mean, then or now? <laughs> over the whole period? Yeah, it's a gentleman over there. My question was, did the OPEC oil crisis of 73 have any effect on the intervention? On the intervention? That's a good question. Hmm. Okay. Can I go now? Please, yeah. Oh, please. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Yeah. You know, I think the... Um, your first question about the archives, I think this is just representative of a lot of similar kinds of stories made by Westerners who didn't know better or, you know, should know better and to disparage things Iranian or perhaps things in the East. Uh, so I think I think it's just part it's just part of that, and I think it was kind of uh, um, after the revolution. I think it was often kind of a defense for you, you know, scholars are meant to look at the broadest variety and range of archived and documents as possible, and this whole area was closed off. So to keep anyone from questioning the fact that they hadn't actually looked at any Iranian any Persian materials, they would say, well, what Persian materials, you know. It's a farce. It's a joke. So, I think it's kind of a combination of um, uh, reasons for that. Um, your your second question was about the British attitude, and did that have something to do with the the overthrow of the show, Maybe at the end. Yeah. 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 I I don't. Um, yeah. I I don't. I don't. Thinks that was so. I mean, the Shah was. Um, I mean, they were able to say. I mean, as I read that quote from the from the Ministry of Defense here. I mean, they appreciated the contribution that the Shah had made. I, I, that's my interpretation. They appreciated that because that meant they didn't have to put the troops in or spend the money, uh, and. Uh, so, and they had withdrawn, you know, from, from, they hadn't withdrawn from Oman, but they had withdrawn from most of the Gulf by that point. So I don't, I don't think it worked, you know, in any way to the, the detriment of Iran as far as British policy was concerned. Um, I mean, actually, they were very interested, the British, I believe, in getting some financial assistance, some British companies and so forth, from the Shah in that period, because... He was, uh, you know, loaning money to many, many countries in far-off lands in the mid-70s. So, 
Um, let's see. I wonder, I wonder if I missed the question. I have a question about the the OPEC oil uh, crisis. Yes. Um, what, what connection that had to uh, to the Iranian intervention? Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't see. Um, I don't see a direct connection there. I mean, except that it's just uh, is is another example of you know the Shah kind of uh, you know flexing his muscles in the region and because of his <laughs> right. Well, all the things. I mean, he has the uh, he has the agreement with Saddam Hussein. Uh, you know. Uh, the, the Algiers Agreement, uh, rectifying the borders and withdrawing aid from the Kurds. I mean, he's got a lot going on at that time. He's, he's, he's uh, you know, uh, his actions going on in Afghanistan as well. Uh, and uh, in Pakistan, he's very concerned about uh, what's happening in Pakistan. He's worried that the Soviets may be uh, trying to, you know, to gain influence there and reach the the Indian Ocean. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it's just part of this great, this grandiose, um, you know, uh, plan that he has. I mean, it includes, uh, at one point he's talking about Australia and South Africa and Iran having this, uh, you know, uh, triumvirate sort of domination of the Indian Ocean. And I, it actually, I mean, it's really quite incredible, 75, and he's, you know, Making these kinds of plans, when you see what happens, you know, three years later, how how quickly uh, it all comes falls apart. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't I, I don't know. I I once uh, read a dissertation of someone who argued that there had been a that there had been an American conspiracy to undermine the Shah's regime, um, and that uh, by Arranging with the Saudis to uh, force down the price of oil because the Americans knew that the Shah was de dependent on getting so much throughput and getting so much money for his treasury and his expenses, and he had to have that money. And so to to kind of put pressure on him by forcing down the price of oil working through the Saudis. And there are, and, and this dissertation had a few, you know, uh, documents that it cited, and the reading of this led this author to this conclusion. But I thought it was, it, it was pretty, it was pretty weak. But, of course, there were American Treasury officials who were not at all happy, like Secretary Simon, Secretary Treasury, were not at all happy with the Shah boosting the prices up. I, I suppose maybe maybe there are conspiracies there, but I I, I didn't you know I didn't find uh, any evidence of that. But then I guess you wouldn't if they were done well, would you? <laughs> Not at this stage, anyway. I don't know. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Yes, please. Sam. Um, first of all, a very interesting talk. And, um, I'm just curious about two things. One, you mentioned the Mujahideen and you know why would they take such a political reason they're already against the show, but did you see any evidence of funding from Saudis um, supporting those kind of groups to For the students? Uh, yeah. Students. Uh, and secondly, 1974 is also the year the Shah is told that he has some form of blood condition, mm -hmm. which later becomes his 
um, nemesis in terms of the cancer that he got. And it's also the year that he pretty much was asserting himself on oil prices and um, his military spending. And do you think a lot of his actions were driven by a kind of insecurity that maybe the West was going to abandon him and that he had to build a independent or alternative maybe sort of position in the region um, and that may have driven a lot of his sort of decisions? Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether he was... I, I don't get a sense of... Let's say abandonment. If, if he worried about, I think, American abandonment, I mean, it would be because the United States was turning towards isolationism and it was not carrying its share of the load, um, that it was being uh, lured uh, it, it, into a kind of um, you know, false sense of security through detente and that uh, you know, and, and, and perhaps that might have had some impact on, you know, on, the, on the Shah's motivations. But, I mean, he was clearly, I mean, he thought that the Soviets were taking, you know, making advancements and so forth, and uh, that uh, he, had to, he had to take the what actions he could to, you know, to, to limit those and to, I mean, particularly in the Gulf, he was very concerned about expansion of the Gulf and naval base in southern Iraq and so forth. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't think he was, you know, too, 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 worried, too worried about that. But he certainly was interested in kind of creating a, an iron ring around Iran uh, with friendly, friendly countries near and far, um, you know, that were beholden in some way, in some way to Iran. There's but, a, just a lady in the far back there. Yeah, in the, in the green. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you can't see her. And we'll come back to you. We just she had her hand up for quite a long uh, time. Uh, sure. I think he had a question. Okay. Sure. And we'll come yeah. to this side. Um, yeah. So, as far as I know, I, I've been heard that the that Iran shares some uh, oil reserve with the Middle East country like Qatar. And uh, is there what, what's the relation uh, at at the political level between those two countries or between? Like north of Middle East, uh, can, Qatar's and uh, Qatar. there, is there share, share uh, oil reserves and uh, what, what are the what are the uh, with, with Iran? Yeah, with Iran. Oh, you mean now or then? Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's that's a hard question. <laughs> I'm a historian. <laughs> I try not to focus too much on the now. But then, I mean, in the article, I have lots of uh, you know um, information about the attitudes of uh, the government in Qatar and Kuwait and Bahrain and the UAE, and they were very opposed to. Um, any intervention on the part of the Shah on the Arab side of the Gulf. And, uh, and, and, and I mean, there are still many tensions uh, uh, today between, you know, I mean, th- those, haven't, those haven't dissipated uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia and uh, its associated uh, Arab c- countries on the, other side of the, on the other side of the Gulf from Iran. But uh, as far as oil policy and OPEC, uh, yeah, I'm not certain exactly what. Well, there is the big gas uh, <laughs> fields that are shared yeah. between Qatar and Iran. Of course, the Qataris have done a much better job of uh, exploiting those fields than the Iranians have, yeah. but for all kinds of reasons. 
technology is very expensive and very difficult to get access mm-hmm. to. And uh, so the Iranians don't really have access to that kind of technology yet. Yeah. But uh, there was an agreement signed between Oman and, uh, and Iran uh, to build a pipeline and to export gas. And so, so I mean, mm-hmm. but, but you know, you have, you have to take all of this with a grain of salt. I mean, these announcements are made every three months, every six months, and then a year later, there's still nothing there. You know, so, <laughs> um, uh, so we wait to see if anything sort of comes out of it. Um, uh, we'll, we'll come back. Yes, please, there you go. Hi, um, I was wondering, you mentioned in your talk that the Arab states, for a number of reasons, didn't want to get involved in Oman. And, also, and one of the reasons was the displeasure that there were Iranian forces on the ground. So I was wondering, in your opinion, how, how has that affected Omani relations with other GCC countries in the aftermath of them allowing um, Iranian troops on the ground, other things like these agreements that might or might not come to fruition, but what do you think the Omani-Iranian relationship has impacted Oman's relationship with other GCC countries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that it was a, was a difficult relationship, you know, partly be, because of that. I mean, my, my sense is that Oman has often gone its, its own way on, on in many of these issues from the other, the other countries uh, along the Gulf and, and, uh, and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, and I, I think that, you know, certainly because they, they encouraged or urged the Shah to send, send the troops in, I mean, that made life difficult for them for a long, for a long time. Because, I mean, my sense is that in the Gulf, I mean, n- none of those countries, you know, Kuwait, uh, Bahrain, Qatar, any of those, really take very strong actions without... I mean, Qatar may be different, but UAE and so forth, that they always look to Riyadh before they, you know, make decisions and so forth. And Oman, I think, has been somewhat more independent, and certainly in this decision it was more independent than, than any of those others would have dared to be. I mean, because the Shah proposed a, a security pact of all the countries on the shores of the Gulf, because that was a policy that these countries should be responsible for the security and therefore there'd be no need for the Soviets or any other country for that matter to come there. But Saudi Arabia would never contemplate entering, I think, into a security pact then and probably not now either <laughs> with with the government of uh, of Iran. So, yeah, so I think, you know, the Omanis have tended to follow this separate course and that made, made the situation difficult for them. And... Uh, they never, uh, I mean, this war went on for some time, but they never really made much of a contribution. Towards the end of it, when the war was basically winding down, um, Saudi Arabia began to supply more funding uh, to Oman, but, but never, you know, never troops. No. Okay. Yes, sir. Hello. Um, uh, I think one of the, one of the reasons that the West was reluctant to finally intervene when the revolution happened in Iran was because of um, the Shah's increasing like independence in his decision making. Mm-hmm. So I think having such a powerful nation in the Middle East taking decisions that not that the U.S. didn't necessarily want to take would be would be um, detrimental. Mm-hmm. 
So you think that, that, that what you're Sorry, saying was there, is... Was there a question there? Or? <laughs> <laughs> um, you forgot the question. The question right? was, do you think um, the US's reluctance to get involved in the revolution in 79 was because of Iran's increasing power and that actually having an Iranian nation so powerful in the Middle East would be... Be well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that the U.S. saw the revolution as necessarily enhancing the power of Iran. You know, exactly. So I think that uh, I mean, American policy up to that point had been that a strong Iran was a benefit to the United States in many ways, and uh, so I think that naturally, when the Shah's regime began to collapse, they be, they panicked because they didn't really understand exactly what was what was going to happen, what the future would be like in that region without without a show. But Maybe one last uh, question. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your <laughs> very interesting uh, lecture. Um, I liked it very much, and uh, I feel pleased that I came to... Uh, to listen to you. <laughs> I came from Thank Oxford, you. actually. <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, I, I want to disagree with you about uh, the um, the term. You know, uh, whether we call it uh, revolutionary, uh, revolutionary, or uh, revolution, or we call it uh, what you call rebellion, or mm -hmm. up uprising, mm -hmm. uh, rebellious, or mm -hmm. you know, whatever you call them, because. Um, uh, for uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them is that when the revolution started, or this is how I mm -hmm. understood it, is that it um, you know it spread it throughout the country, throughout Oman. So uh, there were people from uh, places like in the interior of Oman, like Izki and Rostov, mm -hmm. uh, who joined the revolution. There were people also from Muscat. There were cells that uh, been found in the 70s in Muscat. Um, uh, there were also uh, people from uh, around the Gulf countries, you know, other Gulf countries, uh -huh. like people from Bahrain joined the uh, revolution, people from Kuwait. Uh, there was support from uh, mm -hmm. people in, in Iraq and elsewhere, you mm -hmm. know, all left-wing uh, parties and, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, the Palestinians, for example, they, they supported the... Uh, the people in Oman, mm -hmm. in Dofar. And there were reasons for that, of course, because until the, the revolution itself was, I mean, the overthrow of uh, Sultan Qab of uh, Said bin Taymur, uh, the revolution contributed to that significantly because mm -hmm. the British found out uh, that, um, you know, the revolution was actually uh, gaining grounds and uh, mm -hmm. it was taking, um, you know, lands quickly. And Said bin Taymur himself was attacked once and nearly killed. And so uh, it was in the benefit of many countries, including the British, and first of all, actually, the British, to, uh, to intervene. Mm -hmm. So um, I disagree with that, if you don't mind. And I would love to hear more from you anyway. Uh, that's one thing. The, the other thing I want to ask you is that was it... Um, the, the Sultan, Sultan Qaboos, uh, who invited the, uh, the Iranian to come, or was it the Shah, actually, who felt that 
the Iranian troops um, have to go to Oman mm-hmm. because of the reasons, some of the reasons that you have mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, let's, why don't we give. Oh, sorry, time. thank you so much. <laughs> so I don't want to tie him too much. But I think it's appropriate that we end with an Omani. Before we <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, um, for the, mo- most of what you said at the beginning, you know, you know, I agree with it. I mean, there were lots of other elements who were involved there, uh, groups and, and so forth, for whatever reasons. Uh, and they certainly did. They named it a revolution, but was it a revolution? I mean, we could argue, you know, what is a revolution? Uh, but the, certainly in propaganda and their speeches and so forth, they, they, those, that group which was involved in, you know, opposing the regime in Muscat, I mean, they saw themselves as revolutionaries, but, you know, from the records, I don't call it a revolution, I call it a rebellion, but anyway. Um, the, uh, the, oh, the, the, whether well, it was the Shah, um, I mean, the Shah was certainly primed, I mean, to, to, you know, make an impact in the region, that's for certain. Um, but I don't get the sense from any of the records I looked at that he was imposing these forces on uh, Sultan Khabus um, because the, there were two... Um, the, the, the British were very, very influential in the regime in Oman at the time, as you know. And the, the, uh, the uh, Omani Minister of Defense and then also the commander of the Omani military forces were both... British officers, and they kept the government in London very well informed about what was going on in Oman and so forth. And they were actually, and they made the recommendation to the Sultan about um, the need for more troops. And they knew that they weren't going to get more troops from the government in London. And so they had to find a source. And the Arabs certainly weren't going to send troops. So there was no other place where he could get those troops um, in a short period of time than from Iran, and he knew that the ship... Well, no, <laughs> that's another issue. It was not so easy to get them from Jordan. I mean, Hussein talked a lot about sending troops, but he was very reluctant for a whole variety of reasons to send troops. Um, first of all, this would have an impact on his relationship with the other Arab countries, so he had to move very carefully. And he didn't have the resources of his own to do this. Um, uh, independently, he would have needed uh, a great deal of support from, from the Iranians. In fact, when he does finally, very late in the war, for a very short period of time, I think there's an Iranian, uh, a Jordanian battalion that comes in uh, in the end of or early 75, and it leaves about six months later. Why it leaves is a mystery. Um, uh, but uh, those troops are brought to Oman, you know, on Iranian C-130s. And in fact, the Shah arranges for Hussein to turn over his com- entire air force, so uh, Hawker or something, uh, subsonic, I think, yeah, fighters, and then the Shah gives us in the Phantom jets, American Phantoms, to replace the, the the subsonic aircraft, fighter aircraft that he he gives to Oman, that Hussein gives to Oman. Then the Shah gives Hussein replacements and so forth. 
Um, so, I, I mean, Hussein, the, the British and the Americans were hoping that if they had to be outside troops, they would come from Jordan, but um, it didn't happen. And it didn't happen in 72, and when they finally came in 75, they only stayed for about six months. But the, the um, contribution of the American was was minimal compared to the contribution of the British. Mm-hmm, that's right, yeah. But the Americans were still... Um, I mean, they were still involved in the discussions and so forth, and financially they were involved somewhat as well. We have a reception waiting for us, and we can, <laughs> we can carry on the conversation. There's plenty of time. Right. So please join me in thanking Jim for a real tour.